Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Church Leaders Roundtable podcast. Uh, Kevin here coming at you with part two of race and church and how the two intersect and what we can do about this. And with me, I've got our lovely co-hosts, Darren. Hey, hey, hey. Sarah. Hey. And Stacy. Hey, folks. For me, um, my first church was Catholic. Um, before that, it was just we were Christians in my home. Like, we loved God. We believed in Jesus. And that was just, like, common knowledge. I don't know. Um, but it wasn't until I was around fifth grade, at least, that we started attending Catholic churches with my mom and I. And probably in sixth grade is when I first, uh, we first started specifically going to one that we both liked a lot. Um and that church was 90, probably 98%, if I were just to make an estimate, um, African-American. Um, we're mostly like working class type families. Um, and so being in a Catholic church as my first church experience, I knew there were kind of a range because we went to a couple other Catholic churches before we settled on that one. Um, but this one, um, if I were to categorize what the what the atmosphere was like. It was still a little bit reserved. It wasn't that we couldn't clap but or couldn't say amen, but it just wasn't commonplace per se. Um, but we also had this ecumenical fellowship with other churches that were in um, in our neighborhood. And so there was a there was a non-denominational um, church. There was a um, there was a uh, probably a Methodist church and maybe one or two others, like definitely like an Episcopal church. Um, and we would every year have a revival where all the churches came together and would do several nights at, at each of the churches. Um, so they, when we would go to the revivals and my neighborhood was, was again, um, Chicago is one of the most, still one of the most segregated cities. So our, our neighborhood was all black. Um, but uh, when we go to revivals, we'd see different people's expressions of worship. And it was like, oh, now we can like clap to gospel music. And now we can like jump up and shout hallelujah. What, how can we don't do this at, at our church? <laughs> um, and so some of my friends and and I, uh, with the with one uh, young adult who who had come to really study our church as a sociologist, uh, she helped us start a, a gospel choir, and we would do the more upbeat stuff that you normally clap to, and our yeah. congregation would just sit there so politely and wait <laughs> until we were finished to clap at the end. And it was like, but we saw y'all like dancing in the aisles in other churches. Why are y'all like this? And I, to this day, I don't know what informed that. Um, because there's also the context of we were, again, we were Catholic. We were, we had fellowships with other African-American Catholic churches in the city. Some of them just a few blocks down the street. And they were a lot more expressive in their worship than we were. Um, so I knew that like it was a thing and uh if you've ever heard of saint sabina um that's like a very very well known um very social justice activated uh catholic church in chicago huge congregation with a white pastor who very much identifies as black you know however you want to you know problematize that but um but he he's been invested and deeply rooted in the community for a long time and so culturally it is a very like people are like this isn't a catholic church there's there's people shouting and crying and dancing and every service lasts for four hours like this isn't catholic churches those services are too short right (laughs) catholic churches were known for getting you in and out in 30 to 40 minutes and and that's it and you've done your you've done it so for me all of my context at that point was black churches um but um, I knew that there were still different expressions within our stuff, but I hadn't necessarily grown up in like Baptist churches that mm-hmm. Baptists felt like, like this is quintessential black church where you have the church fans with Martin Luther King printed on it. And it's a hot church with no air conditioning, but there's like red carpeting and, and some, some ladies crying and weeping in the corner and waving her hand, like the stereotypical movie expressions, mm-hmm. like in blues brothers, like it, you know, those kind of things were like, to me, that was black church air quotes. Um, and my church 
was black, but it wasn't black church. Um, and it wouldn't be until I was in a charismatic non-denominational church in college. That was my toxic church where um, I had where I got most of the quote unquote black church experience to the point. I picked up a southern accent because <laughs> in Chicago, wow. most black people are direct descendants of the uh, the Great Migration and have everybody mm. here wow. they're they're all their people came from the south everybody yeah. knows about going back down south for for you know family reunions going back down south for funerals going yeah. down south was just a thing and i was yeah. probably well into my adult years before i went to new york and it's like oh wait there are all kinds of black and not everybody is from the south like you look like, quote unquote, regular black to me and you have a Spanish <laughs> accent. And I don't know what to do with that in my little feeble brain, because in Chicago, like the Dominicans, like you had to go to a specific space to see Dominicans mm -hmm. who were mm. dark brown. Mm -hmm. You had to go to specific spaces. Every you knew what you were going to encounter depending on where you went in the city. Right. And I was a kid who was raised going to different parts of the city because that, that was another thing in Chicago. You might spend your whole life never leaving your neighborhood. Yeah. Um, and so you only know what's in your neighborhood and the culture of that neighborhood. Um, so when it came to church, I also encountered the thing where because I was Catholic, um, outside of other Catholic circles or outside of a Catholic school, most people only knew Catholicism because of Catholic schools. Um, but outside of that, people would be like, oh, that's white church. Um, mm -hmm. And then more specifically, when I did go to a large evangelical church that was about 50% white and the rest were all kinds of other diversity, um, that was where I most got tagged as, oh, you go to that white church. And it was, it didn't matter like how many ways I explained what the, what the makeup was, didn't mm -hmm. matter how, who was on stage. If it wasn't hardcore black church, like I described, then it's white church. Mm -hmm. And that, that binary dichotomy between what is black church versus it was, it was either black church or it was white church. There was just no gray. There was no in between. There were no, like, whatever Latino expressions might have existed. We had no frame for that. Mm -hmm. um, in fact, I went to a school that was uh, a, pretty much an even split between black, white, um, and uh, Latino or Hispanic. And I chose that on purpose because that was diversity to me. I did not have a frame reference for Asian people other than that they existed in the world. But I didn't think, oh, that might be an, another part of me choosing a place that's more diverse. Um, but there was only like one or two schools that you could even get into into the city that were that diverse. Um, but for me... Uh, I did grow up like I had the I had the the diversity poster picture of friends in my high school, mm -hmm. like my friends in high school. <laughs> we were the diversity <laughs> picture and it wasn't <laughs> fake. It was just it was just who we were and it was just yeah. how we connected. But um, this is this is getting way deeper into to what I wanted to do. But one of the things that was the first place that I experienced uh, one of my friends who was white. Uh, her father at first banned me from being in the friend circle um. and uh and they were they were polish so it was like they only got to be white by a smidge <laughs> because again when you have more of a polish identity you're not seen as white until you lose the accent lose the spellings and well you can keep some of the spellings but until you lose the identity piece then you get to be white and he was in that space of trying to move into whiteness yep. and me being a friend it was like well are you you know he was worried about if i was going to date his daughter he was going to worry about all this other stuff he just didn't feel the gay i don't know but um it wasn't obvious <laughs> but uh <laughs> I remember that was the first time that I encountered like being directly, overtly discriminated against. Mm -hmm. And I did not have a sense of danger of what that meant. My mom was super cautious of me hanging out with them and, and so mm -hmm. forth because she just had a, a greater awareness. But I was just like, oh, well, he's kind of racist, but, you know, it's no big deal. It's fine. And looking mm -hmm. back, I was like, I could have ended up in somebody's basement somewhere. <laughs> like if he had yeah. just been and it was. Fortunately, it did progress to, okay, well, he's okay because he's the exception, right? He's mm -hmm. he's a good black person. He's not like those other black mm -hmm. kids. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I, in my na naivety, thought that uh, me being the exception was some kind of accomplishment. Mm -hmm. And that was not true. But again, 
when you're in this place where, uh, kind of to what Kevin was saying, where you do have a little bit of access to pass or you have a little bit of access mm-hmm. to be, to assimilate, mm-hmm. it feels like this is a good thing because now yep. people who are discriminating mm-hmm. against other yep. folks is like, oh, this is how you end discrimination, right? You know, you mm-hmm. you 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 join in and you you make yourself different and somehow people who've never had to do that will give you accolades for becoming more like them. Right. And you're like, I'm flexing a muscle you probably never knew existed. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't until high school was a lot of transition, but it wasn't until um, college where I encountered a lot more of the typing of what what race your church is and a lot more of the typing of based on what music that is being sung or performed, um, based on the style of the preaching, based on how long you were in church. Um, I remember the first time I was at a midnight musical, uh, I was sneaking off to go meet up a guy who I was interested in and he sang in a choir and I had to go to the West side because again, I grew up on the South side. There was no reason for me to ever go to the West side of the city. Um, and it was like, I walked into something I'd never seen. There were people swinging towels and, and a choir was rocking the stage and, and somebody was, was falling out on the side and it was 11 59 PM. And why are we in church? And why is it so <laughs> hot in here? <laughs> Somebody turn on the air conditioning. Right. And it was, it was a whole culture that I knew nothing about. Even even the idea of a South Sider going to see a West Sider was still like you were walking into a different black culture. Um, mm. But I remember having this. I always had an openness and a curiosity to, to difference. And so um, I was like, OK, I, I was like this little scientist, like I'm observing this very interesting place. <laughs> and then we're going to make out later. But <laughs> <laughs> but that was I mean, that's another layer oh. that we'll get into maybe in so another series. Tell me more about this. You called it a midnight midnight musical. musical. Yeah, I'm trying I've to figure out that what that is. Before. That's so funny. I was I was curious to see if anybody would even that would resonate for it. if I if I said midnight musical in a room full of black folks everybody would like have stories and, and talk about what we used to do back in the day not everybody okay like people who grew up in that culture but and so, so what what it was is that choirs churches that were in the culture of choirs and these choirs are very like very when i say trained i don't mean they went to school but like really talented mm-hmm. very skilled mm-hmm. choirs that could do all this vibrato and these choreographed mm-hmm. moves and they have these robes and they travel um either to other churches in their like network or around the country mm-hmm. and like doing these really big numbers i'm talking about like 40 50 100 people in the choir like the whole design of the church has a huge choir loft built into it and it has to be able to withstand everybody jumping up and down (laughs) at the same time like this is not your quiet we hold our hymnals and sing choir this is a choir where every sunday people are dripping with sweat where again like sometimes your choir is so big that they have to sit in the audience as -hmm. well as in the choir stand like it was a big thing Mm -hmm. and um for these for these people for these groups again it wasn't my my particular brand of black church culture but for people who were in that part of the culture um there were church choirs that could be really really good and then there were community choirs Mm -hmm. and the community choirs were sometimes people who who really couldn't do church no more but they still like the culture and the music and Mm -hmm. so forth and they were the ones who were more likely to be recording and traveling um and the church choirs are the ones that were really deeply uh attached to that church you probably were born there you got three four generations of family there um your family probably like a preacher or something like that um but either way it was a huge culture it was a huge thing to be a part of these and so they would get together and have these musicals and it would just be a whole thing that might start at 10 o'clock at night and six or 12 choirs would be lined up on the program wow and y'all would sing the house down until the holy spirit was done (laughs) Because everybody Amen. was supposed to do an A and a B selection, you know, two yep. songs. I but missed out. It was a thing. It That's was a whole cool. culture. That sounds neat. And it, it's so funny because, again, with the with the gay thing, like they were notoriously gay. 
but it was don't ask, don't tell. And right. so that's the joke that there wouldn't be any like right. black choirs without the gay men leading the choirs. Right. And you yeah. know, the altos were some some good lesbian women too, but you know, we don't really talk about that part. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was a whole thing. And I remember, you know, you to the two of you share some things that you distanced yourselves from. I remembered uh not wanting to be a church gay because yeah. those were those were the ones who really didn't love Jesus. They just yeah. they just you know once show out and they didn't they just wanted to be around the, the quiet community and so I didn't want to be a church gay. I didn't want to I didn't want to um I didn't want to jump and shout and fall out in the aisles until I became charismatic. Then I was like, oh, it's not just a performance. It's not just being mm-hmm. emotional. Um, I didn't want to be a regular black person at some point in my life. And, you know, me being well-spoken and, and uh, being articulate meant that I got the speaking parts at church often or, or mm. you know, different things like mm-hmm. that. Um, but I remember having so many cultural things kind of um, presented to me that my mom was really great about resisting without naming all the things that were going on. Um, but one of the things I always point out is when people would call me articulate, she was she just knows how to speak. And it wasn't that she was downing me or taking away from my compliments. She want, she was challenging the idea that you should expect black kids to not know how to speak mm. in a more mm. formal way. That's powerful. Um, and I didn't, I didn't know what it meant at the time, but really by the time I was a senior in high school, it was super clear that I didn't read the way people typically read black men and that it was both an asset and a liability. And so me engaging with colleges, I really my freshman year of high school, two when I walked into the to the open house, two men came beelining, leaving other conversations to come talk to me. One was a very tall, large white man who was the football coach, and another was a very t- tall, large black man who was the basketball coach. And when I had zero interest or skill or ability in either of those sports, it was the last time they talked to me for the next wow. four years. I believe it. And that was that was again being a tall, large-bodied black black young man meant that I, I walked with the liability of being scary to people my whole life, mm-hmm. um, and that I always knew how to disarm people from that from those presumptions and assumptions and fears. But it also meant that I was being told I was a disappointed disappointment for not mm-hmm. playing basketball and not playing football. Um, for me being an artsy kid, oh no 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 no. Um, and I and I I sing now, but I wasn't a singer back then. S, you know, I don't even know if I know how to spell it. But um, there was singing, which is very you know proper and so different. Forth. But you could sing. Yeah, that's when you could Absolutely. you know have people rolling on the floor and all this other stuff. Absolutely. And I still struggle with it because like I know I have some abilities, but you know the the insecurities creep up. And and when I tell people I sing. I still to this day my my the the music that my band makes uh wouldn't typically read as gospel music. So some of my friends say, Oh, you sing that white people music. And sometimes it's a compliment when they're saying it, but it's still classified in their mind as white people music. Uh every now and then I get the the oh, you do inspirational music, which I think is another thing that came from like, for example, there was a black uh radio station in Chicago that on Sundays they would play hits of, of of inspiration because there was this weird thing and I, I don't have a whole lot of history of this but there was this weird thing where inspirational songs became like a code or a little way to get gospel played on things that mm-hmm. weren't an explicitly radio station or, or, and then mm-hmm. like CC and BB Winans they yeah. crossed over into inspirational music and there was there's a lot of stuff there but um all that to say, uh, there were a lot of racialized lenses that I continue to this day to sort through and to work through about how I see church, how I think about my expressions in church. Um, I'll give one last expression or one last experience. Um, I remember when I first uh, started singing at my large evangelical church um, that the culture was still more white centered, even if it wasn't exclusively white. Um, And I remember being the only one I'd ever seen, like raise their hand in worship or cry in worship. And when I was on the the praise team, I would wake up every Sunday 
and sometimes spend most of Saturday night making sure my hair was absolutely in place because I started growing my locks at that point. Um, and I, I was always worried that somebody was going to tap me on the shoulder one day and say, your hair is too messy. We, we don't want you to go on stage. Mm. Um, and that came not from the culture of, of the white churches. It came from what I got secondhand in my all black churches where we, we had these ideas that, well, will white people in church do this? White people in church do that. Um, and they were describing aspects of, of white American Christian culture, but it also came with a lot of presumptions and biases that, again, people of color don't have the collective power to oppress white people, but we do have biases and we do have uh, certain ideas that, um, that, you know, work against any group just like anyone else can do. Um, we just can't oppress anybody with our stuff. Um mm. And so there were there were there were things that I carried into that church where I was expecting somebody to to tell me that some part of my blackness was too much, that my mm -hmm. crying or dancing on stage was too much, that my hair was too much, that my something, and it never happened. And it I had to sort through. Oh, these are things that that came from being in a minority or a marginalized context and the way that we have viewed what church and worship is, is through this oppressed lens where, where we see our expressions as other mm -hmm. and that the mainstream, that they just have a, a less than kind of thing. We just kind of downplayed it. I didn't even know that there were white charismatics until I was in my twenties. Wow. <laughs> like I didn't, I didn't know that there was this whole other history of white people who are very like expressive in church and so forth. Um, and I'm still curious about more of that history, but there's so much that was just not, I wasn't aware of, and that informs how we see church and how we see God. On that last note, uh, that you just said, I started leading, uh, worship at 13 in my youth group because my parents got me a, an electric guitar. And so like youth group worship is basically just alt rock and Chris Tomlin. Uh -huh. And like, and that's it. <laughs> There's nothing else to it. Um, and then when I started leading worship in the Spanish congregation uh, at, you know, at our church, it was still very much this like very reserved sort of thing. And it wasn't until I started going to conferences and seeing the way that other Hispanic churches did worship that I realized, hey, there's folks out there that are like, they raise their hands during worship mm -hmm. and it's not heretical. <laughs> that part. And they clap their hands before the song ends. They, they clap during the bridge and that's encouraged. <laughs> right. Um, and so like seeing that kind of Darren, what you were talking about, just seeing that multiculturalism within the multiculturalism was just was huge for me and just getting to the point where I am now that hey it doesn't it doesn't matter what kind of christian you are as long as you love jesus it doesn't matter what what church you go to as long as you're worshiping god doesn't matter how you worship God as long as um and I, just, and I think I think more people need that exposure I think too many people live inside that bubble their whole lives and they they fully believe that if anybody does it differently that other person is in the wrong mm -hmm. um, right yep and that's just that fear response yeah yeah, yeah exactly yeah, I grew up in a very white church, <laughs> and that's all that was around. There were no other types of churches. Everything, all the Lutheran churches, the Catholic churches, they were all white. And um, I, growing up in the Fundy Baptist churches um, for the first, like, 18 years of my life, that was all of my exposure that I had except for TV or the movies. And that I didn't see until I was like, you know, middle school, high school, because we didn't get to go to the movies. So 
<laughs> Were the movies uh, rapture-proof places? <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> and don't get me started on that. <laughs> but, so my thing is, because we went to the Indo- independent fundamentalist Baptist churches, like, my source of, like, being different was my hair was always too short. Or my skirt was too short, or I was wearing jeans, or I was wearing, you know, shorts. God forbid. And we were we were never allowed to wear shorts to church ever, you know. But so those things were like the controversial, and we didn't dance and don't, you know. And so whenever we'd have like a visitor come to church that obviously what wasn't a part of our church and they'd say amen everybody looked you're like where did it come from who said that and do they not know who we are like this is not who we are type of thing we were not praying right (laughs) but the but i remember though going for some sort of i don't know if it was some sort of like music night that the assembly of god church was having in town and my mom i went with my mom and my aunt who my aunt had friends that went to that church and um we went and they had a band like what they had drums and drums in church guitar, yes which what you know to our church like that was evil so yeah. like that was pure oh the devil's uh, music so and then like people were raising their hands and so that was like my cultural <laughs> difference and i was so freaking intrigued by that though when i was a kid so that's why when i got to college i sought that shit out sorry i sought that out and like because i was always on the mindset like there's got to be something more like there's something more to this and it's not all just like this serious like you know read from the king james type of stuff and i mean even when i as a teenager i was a very committed christian and i bought an NIV study Bible for teens. And that was yes, like the teen pushing study the limit. Yes. Was, was, it, was it neon colors? And no, no, what? no. It was black and I still own it. Oh, I still, yeah, I still have it on my shelf. It hasn't been read in years, but that was my go-to Bible up until like five years ago. So nice. Yeah. Was the teen study Bible. It for was, my... it was the first teen study Bible. I think that there ever was. <laughs> For my, I think, ninth birthday, there was an NIV prophecy study Bible. Oh. I had that one too. Uh, I had a bunch of different, yeah. Oh, I still I still have this one, but like I wanted that Bible for my birthday. It was in the church bookstore, which was really just like three glass cases with whatever <laughs> in them. And it was like, it was expensive too, but I begged my parents for it. Mm-hmm. And they got it for me, and I still, I still have it. I still use it. I need to rebind it, but it was, it was a very big deal that this mm-hmm. child was getting a study Bible. Yes, you're birthday. serious about the Word of God. <laughs> and now I'm getting my MDiv. So, oh, thanks, study yeah. Bible. <laughs> yeah, when I went, when I started in college, and I was trying out all these different churches, that's when I got more exposed like there was a church that was pretty diverse that I went to for a couple of weeks and uh just to check it out and they were like super super charismatic but you know they had a lot and I don't know if the uh pastor was some sort of Latino um I think if I remember correctly and but they were like dressed to the nines at this church so they were very like and they had like their own tv like you know on sunday mornings they had their show and stuff like that so they were very well to do church large church and then i visited um a couple others that were more not so diverse and then i 
kind of planted myself at this one church in St. Paul, and I was there for a number of years. And they actually, they were diverse in leadership, and they welcomed refugees and sponsored refugees. And I always, that was like very, very cool. Like they always called, they called themselves something like the church of the, oh, what was it? Missional church, but it was like church of the nations is I think what they. Oh, did they have the flags? Sounds right. The church. Yeah. Yes. Hey, don't, don't knock the flags. Don't knock the flags. (laughs) I'm not saying the flags are bad. I got a story. Don't knock the flags. I was right that they had the flags. I'm just saying. (laughs) And not just the flags on the walls of the different countries, but we had flags too. Oh, I love flags. <laughs> so, yeah. So that was like, yeah, that was a good like immersion because we also had fellowships that we got together with that were. There was a couple of black churches in the neighborhood that we got together with and did stuff with. And I always really, really appreciated that. And then I, um, it was funny because um, my, the end of my freshman year of college, and I went to a very white uh, Christian college, um, I chose to work a summer, Darren, at a camp outside of Chicago uh, that was in um, a little town just in Southern Wisconsin. And we used to bus kids from the inner city up to our camp. Yes, please (laughs) talk about it. Yes, so it's a Salvation Army camp. And but it was specifically for the inner city Chicago kids from Harvey, so from the south side, and we bust them actually, yeah, yeah. So they'd come up and they'd spend, I think it was like 10 days, seven to 10 days with us, and that was my first real experience being a minority. Because there was most of the counselors, most of the staff, half of them were not American. They were from other countries. They were from Scotland and Ireland and Wales and Australia. And they came over also to be staff. And then there was, um, I actually met one of my really good friends who's also from Chicago, met him there. And, um, but otherwise, like there was a good handful of us that were just white people (laughs) in amongst all these little kids and then some teenagers also that were from Chicago and it was always a really interesting experience because there would be the random little white kid and I would always there was always like one in each cabin and I felt really bad for that little white kid because they were picked on so much but at the same time I was like I get why you're picking on that little white kid too so it's just one of those things where like I and I had to sit and just like be okay this is, we are coming not only from two different cultures, because here I am, this white, not affluent by any means, but obviously way more privileged than these little kids coming from inner city Chicago and who are living a completely different life than I was. And it was just, that was really interesting. And then we had like chapel with them. And so these kids that are like not used to having chapel at all are having to sit in this really nice white chapel space. You know what I mean? I was like, going to ask who was curating the worship or whatever the, yeah, the, the so services this, were. The staff for the camp, basically we were the ones that led the songs and these kids are looking at us like we don't know these songs at all and there was kind of an expectation that everyone knew the songs already I'm sure. i 
think a little bit of ex- expectation. And then after the first like two weeks of this, we're like, okay, so they don't know the songs. So we kind of, I don't, I don't remember that was, this was a long time ago. So I don't remember if we just kind of gave up, up on that or we did different things. So gotcha. It, yeah, it was interesting though. And yeah. were there any other times you, where you were in a space for worship where, um, where it was predominantly led by people from a different culture or a different race than you? Yeah. So I actually got to experience, um, oh, maybe 15 years ago or so, um, I attended a workshop at a really large, very well-known church in the area here. And they had brought in a special speaker and his um, music person and they did a workshop a choral workshop so um the speaker his name is i don't know if you're familiar with him because it's like i said this is years ago so it was um tim story i think or tom story or something like that sounds maybe familiar go ahead yeah i don't remember who the his uh choir director is but the (laughs) it was phenomenal to be able to sit in a black choir and get training from them because it's completely different from any sort of classical training that I've had. And then just my um, more of a rock influence, I guess you'd say um, that I have and the harmonies come from different places that I can hear it in my head happening which is freaking amazing but then to be a part and sing along and the conducting is way different also and then you have singers that were leading you in different it was just it was amazing I loved it and I'll always remember it it was very cool even we even took a Beatles song changed a couple of words and we ended up performing it at the service later that night. And it was, sounded really, really cool because he totally redid the song to make it work. It was very cool. Yeah. That, that, that remixing, remaking, reinventing is so like, that's a, that's a, that's a regular Sunday morning at many mm-hmm. black churches. It's yeah. common. Like right now I could, there's a, and there's Hispanic. a meme. Oh yeah. Um, people of color churches really have that that's been the thing like we've we've been in a in a place where we're not the dominant culture and so innovating changing making it work for us is is mm-hmm. a thing that's super common right now there's there's a meme of somebody church like somebody churched or made it churchy sounding the spongebob squarepants theme song <laughs> And of, if you just don't listen to the words, you would like really it. be blessed. <laughs> I know what I'm doing after this. Oh, that's funny. Well, that's what I'm looking up. And in... right. And everybody else, when they're listening to this, they're gonna Google it immediately. Right. It's gonna be. I it's hope gonna so. be great. So um, we we've had some really really good conversations. I want uh, for us to maybe close with this uh, kind of just reflection and um, then each of us share what comes to mind as we reflect. So I invite you to close your eyes. <laughs> Same thing turn off my camera. Listening. Right. Uh, right. <laughs> All right we're, we're recording this and we're on a Zoom call so we can see each other. But yeah, um, if you're in your car by yourself listening, you can turn off your camera too. Um, <laughs> But if you if you close your eyes and think for a second and um, imagine yourself in a room and you're alone in this room and this is a comfortable room. Um, this is maybe your room or just someplace that's familiar. And as you're sitting in this room, Jesus walks in and Jesus is there. Jesus is, is smiling at you. Um, Jesus walks up to you and sits beside you. That's the exercise. What I'd like you to do is to think about what did Jesus look like? Mm -hmm. What texture was Jesus's hair? Mm -hmm. What color was Jesus's skin? Um, what, what What did Jesus look like? And 
when you think about that, where did it come from? Like, did you see pictures of Jesus that looked like that? Did you see um, movies that depicted Jesus looking this way or paintings or art? Um, and then has that picture changed for you at all? Or has it always been the same? For me, that picture of Jesus has definitely changed. Um, I mean, I grew up in the same America that everybody else did with blonde-haired, blue-eyed baby Jesus staring back at me from every single book. Uh, my wife and I went through all our kids' books this summer. Um, yeah, this last summer. And made a, a really concerted effort to make sure that diversity was included in every single book, which meant giving away a few Bibles, most of their Bibles, actually. Um, because we didn't, we don't want them to grow up with that same, uh, honestly, historically inaccurate view of Jesus. We, it's not that we want Jesus to look like them. It's not that we want Jesus to uh, be something that he wasn't or a culture or a race that he wasn't. It's that we want him to be historically accurate. And so that picture for me of Jesus uh, tonight is different than what it was two years ago than what it was 10 years ago, than what it was when I was a little kid. Mm -hmm. um, What's Jesus' hair like tonight? Tonight, Jesus' hair is uh, black, dark, long, curly, um, rough, and and thick. That's what Jesus' hair is like tonight for me. What's his skin like? Uh, also dark, uh, weathered. You can tell that. I could tell that uh, he's been out in the sun a lot. Um, it's dusty. It's not like my skin. <laughs> mm, okay. It's darker than my skin. It's uh, rougher than my skin. That's what's up. I think when I, you know, growing up, when I thought about Jesus, it was like con the conflicting pictures that I saw was one was the church that, um, that I grew up going to, where it's just the, the tradition, what I say, I guess the common Jesus picture where he's kind of looking at you, but he's very fair skin. Mm -hmm. um, and then there's Catholic Jesus on the candle that that like <laughs> that picture <laughs> also white but you know long robe and mm -hmm. um what what, we'll what what's catholic jesus's hair like catholic jesus's hair is i think it's i get i'm probably mixing up the candles but I, it's, like it's like it's like, covered it's cut it's like i think it, I, yeah i feel like it's covered he's it's got like so, really a hood it. over him uh, yeah yeah. Okay. yeah. His cloak. Um, I want to say it's like light brown though. Yeah, but all mm -hmm. you basically see is like white, maybe some blue hues, mm -hmm. but it's it's very, very pale. Um but as I was envisioning this, like just with what I all you know, all that I know that you know Jesus was not, you know, blonde hair, blue eyes, white that I grew up seeing. Um, for me, I, you know, instantly just saw, you know brown skin, um, dark brown hair. For some reason, I still like, I didn't see long hair. I was just like short, you know, short brown hair. But I mean, I imagine back then his hair would likely be long. Um, but yeah, it's, what it's was the very texture like? I, curly. I go to, yeah, very curly, um, you know, thicker, not just like thin, straight, you know, shiny hair. Um, but that's, yeah, that's, that's what mm. I mentioned. Jesus was a brown man. And so. that's what's up. What about you? For, what about for you, Stacey? So 
I want to say that I saw a Middle Eastern man, but that's not who I saw. Yeah, keep it 100. <laughs> because, yeah. you know, like Sarah said, you know, you grow up with seeing this certain image depicted. And so you close your eyes and that's what you see immediately. And so... Tell us what that picture looks like. What so it's the that picture of him in his white robe and with the blue sash, and mm -hmm. he's got the medium like auburnish walnut colored brown hair, and it's long and wavy, a little bit of wave on the end, you know, and not oh, yeah, curly just at the, all. Just the end, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, but. I know, I know that that's not anything what Jesus looked like. Oh, and it always made him look really skinny too, I feel like. Like he was okay. lanky and, you know. Mm -hmm. But I know, obviously, that's not what a Middle Eastern man looks like. Mm -hmm. You know, they're going to be dark and have probably curly, curly hair and dark hair. And, you know, I just... I hate that it's still so ingrained because that's all we've really seen up until recent, you mm -hmm. know, now we're finally seeing, you know, black Jesus, the middle Eastern Jesus. And it's taken us this long to see yeah. that. So. Well, and here's something that I'll point out, uh, not just for, I think, you know, this, but also for whoever's listening, um, the point isn't, to be the point isn't to have the correct or accurate picture of Jesus right now. The point is to be striving for a yeah. more accurate picture in general. I mean, even why is that important? Uh, because it's about it's about the journey, not about the destination. The destination, uh, I believe, is we're all gonna we're we're all going to end up with God living here on earth with us. I mean, we see that in the book of Revelation. The destination is the same for every single one of us. The journey, the the what happens between now and then and how we grow closer to God and how we grow closer to Jesus and and whether we strive to be better people and better Christians and in that is uh understanding that I don't know everything and that even my picture of Jesus isn't a hundred percent accurate. Your picture of Jesus isn't a hundred percent accurate. Um, not just, you know, physical Jesus, but also spiritual Jesus, emotional Jesus, mental Jesus. And so, and the important thing we see over and over again in the Bible that God doesn't care about the actual physical things that we do. It looks like God does because of the way the Bible is written, but God doesn't care about the actual physical things that we do or the things that we envision or the things that we say. God cares about the heart behind it. And so if if you're listening right now, and this is what I want to say, if, if you're listening right now and when you close your eyes, you picture to a Jesus that looks exactly like you no deviations or or looks like the jesus that you grew up with um and and you're like oh that's probably not the most accurate jesus that there is god cares that you know that that's not the most accurate jesus god cares what's in your heart not what actually happens um and I think that's important to note because otherwise we get into this, this like blame game. I'm trying to be the most yeah. right version of my. Exactly. Exactly. And it's not about being the most right. It's about seeking who God is. It's about seeking the ultimate truth, not what my relative truth is or what your relative truth is. So I just want to offer that as in, I guess, an encouragement to, um, to the four of us, because I mean, I'm saying that to myself also, but also to whoever's listening, that we don't have to have it all figured out. It, it's all a process and God cares about the process, not about the destination. 
not about where we are right now. When I um when when I do this exercise, um again, I'm I'm already aware that I've led people through the same thing before and that um that so much of our social conditioning informs what we see, um, where we grew up, who we were around, what was considered taboo or not taboo, all that affects it, right? Um, for me, and again, this is kind of unique, but but to my to my advantage, I did grow up uh, with a mixture of pictures of Jesus. Um, I think I think God was often seen in in very traditional white male kind of portrayals but I did I can I can think back to a pretty young age of seeing Jesus with an afro of seeing um, Jesus with dark brown skin um, of seeing like I even remember like Christmas around the world exhibits at the Museum of Science and Industry in Chicago where uh, different cultures painted Jesus in ways that looked like them. So there was Asian Jesus, there was um, Pacific Islander Jesus, there were all kinds mm-hmm. of expressions. Um, and so for me, it wasn't taboo to see Jesus looking like people that you came from. Um and it also wasn't about a literal accuracy. Like, yes, Jesus was a literal, real person who lived in a in a specific time, in a specific context, um, and had a specific specific ethnic and racial heritage. If we looked at it in today's terms, um, but the image of Jesus was still about connecting with God in a lot of ways, and so. Um, I grew up around, like at St. Sabina Church that I mentioned earlier, they they have this um, kind of world famous painting of these two very obviously um, black hands that were God's hands and a um, and a Jesus that was a black man who had a, a short afro, who had very dark brown skin um, and was smiling in this white robe and, and so forth. And that's that's hanging up on their altar. It's on several album covers for choirs that have recorded there. Um, that was just as valid a picture of Jesus to me as the um, this also comes from Chicago. The, there's a there's a very common picture of Jesus that's a, like a brown background. He's got brown hair, mostly straight hair, a beard, a goatee kind of beard, um, and is kind of looking to the side. Uh, there's that specific painting was painted here in Chicago at North Park University, mm-hmm. um, and it became so popular because it was distributed to uh, to soldiers as a part of some government thing, because of course you can distribute pictures of Jesus um, as long as, you know, as long as you keep the separation of church and state. Right. Um, But it was distributed at one point, I think during one of the world wars or something. And that became a super common way that people saw Jesus because one person who was from North park, which I think is like a a Norwegian kind of uh, background or Swedish, something like that. Like that Jesus looked like them in some mm-hmm. ways. And that was the thing that got distributed. And so many people can, re- if you know, if I look it up and send it to you, you go, oh, that picture? Yeah, that picture. Um, but so many people got their references for Jesus from whatever art was distributed. Um, so like for me, when I close my eyes, when I'm in my most like just having an encounter with, with God moment, Jesus is just light. And doesn't have necessarily a human form. Um, but if when I try to like imagine or picture Jesus, it is very much like a glitch in the matrix and different mm. artist renditions go flipping through my head at the same time. So sometimes Jesus is white marble, which we also know is one of the reasons why we tend to think of religious figures as white. Like the fact that marble Without color is the way we see a lot mm-hmm. of statues, even yep. though we know historically now that those statues would have been painted into skin tones. Um, but we see them presented in white, which is not how they originally were designed. Um, so, like, there's so many things that inform how we think about God, how we think about Jesus, um, where that comes from. And it, I think it's worth challenging that 
and thinking through it. Because again, I've been a part of, of efforts and organizations that like, hey, the, here's a scientist reconstruction of what a Middle Eastern man in this time and in this context probably looked like. And I'm fine with that image. Um, and the, the only image I really challenge is this blonde hair, blue eyed image, not because you can't have Jesus who's blonde hair and blue eyed as a part of your faith, but more so how it upholds this bigger idea of the supremacy mm -hmm. of whiteness yeah. because that was a part of what was done to say people who look this way are closer to God. Right. And everyone who looks less and less like this is further and further away from yeah. God. And that's what I'm challenging when I challenge blonde hair, blue eyed Jesus. It's not from a place of let's be accurate. Let's be right. Cause even rightness sometimes is a, is a part of the values of the supremacy of whiteness. Instead, I'm saying, let's get back to who we are. Let's get back to the kind of people who, who love God and love others and being able to have empathy or to see and feel what someone else is going through comes from seeing yourself in that position. Um, and so like researchers have even found that um, people who are white rarely have to see themselves in the race or the body of another of another uh, person or another group. And that playing the simple act of playing a video game where you're some non-white character can increase your actual empathy. Hmm doing little things of challenging the ways that you see your religious figures um, increases your capacity for love for other people. And so um, I, I present it as, you know, a challenge to people not, again, not to say that how do you get the most right picture of Jesus, but instead, how do you form a picture of Jesus that inspires you to love your neighbor as you love yourself? Mm. And sometimes you may need to lean into some alternate versions. I know people who picture Jesus as a woman, not because we mm -hmm. don't think that Jesus was a woman, but because for them to connect with God and to challenge some of the mm -hmm. ways that they've been been socialized as women, to see as women as less than, to see women as less than the picture of and the fullness of God, they have reworked their images mm -hmm. and the ways that they worship and the ways that they express themselves so that they re are reminded that they too are the image and likeness of the divine. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, again, just to kind of dovetail from what Kevin was saying, um, like the heart of this isn't, rightness, the heart of this is how do we continue to grow? You know, how do we continue to be the kind of people who are learning and becoming a little bit better inside and outside of the church? Um, because I think at the end of the day, uh, if we if we are able to, to see ourselves in more places, if we're able to hear other stories, if we're able to build that empathy, I think that is what yeah. leads to love that really does change everything. spent some time talking about some really personal, close to the heart stuff, talking about church, talking about race, talking about who we are, what we know, and what we don't know, um, can be really unsettling. And uh, it takes a, a lot of bravery and courage to, to dig into that. Um, so for those who are comfortable with it, uh, I want to offer a few words of prayer. Um, but I don't want to make this a kind of thing where anyone feels obligated to or has to feels like they have to say amen to anything that I'm saying. Um, this is just an offering. So if you if it resonates with you, take it with you and, you know, enjoy it. If not, it's completely appropriate to just bypass this. So um, for those who are willing, let's pray. Uh, dear God who sees us and knows us and understands us better than we understand ourselves. Um, the God who shows up in our many understandings, who is willing to speak to us in ways that we don't even fully comprehend when it happens. Um, thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for helping us to see ourselves in you um, by being incarnate by showing up in flesh and skin and hair and and language and song and all the ways that you show up god our world keeps us so divided and keeps us 
um, disqualifying and distancing from each other. But I, I think that in the end, you really are helping us to see who we are as we see you more. So God, um, for those who are listening, help us to, uh, help us to go on this journey with you to be informed and surprised and, and challenged by things. Um, and in the end, um, help us to, to be a bit more loving as a result of it. Uh, Thank you for this time. Thank you for these people. Thank you for these co-hosts. I'm appreciative of what you're doing that even I don't fully understand yet. And uh, that's it. Amen.